when people deconvert, it can be very traumatic. It's in some ways like losing a loved one because there's all these connections in your brain that are there. And all of a sudden you have this dissonance thing where your sort of your consciousness becomes aware of all these problems. And so what has to happen is you have to rewire your brain. Those old connections have to dissolve and die off. That's called synaptic pruning. And you have to make new connections. You literally have to rewire your brain when you come out of religion. Just give yourself grace when you do it. It's going to take a while and you're going to go through a lot of anger and rage and all that stuff. It's grief. It's a grief process and your brain has to rewire. There are over 4,000 recognized religions in the world. Which one are you leading? Why are you deconverting? Welcome to the Deconversion Podcast, where we explore the experiences and challenges of deconverting from religious faith. We are here to discuss and explore this topic and help you on your journey to living an authentic life. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Deconversion Podcast. Today we have with us River from Denver, Colorado. Tim, did you like that? Was that exactly what you were looking for? Something I don't believe I have a soul. Booga 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 boo. Anyway, if I had a soul, it would be dead right now. But (laughs) so this is fantastic. (laughs) Yes, River, this is how Tim wants me to do it. Oh no. Welcome no. to the Decomber. No, I want you to do it like a professional. <laughs> I want you to do it like a professional radio host. I want you to go three, two, one. Welcome to the Deconversion Podcast. We're so happy you're with us today. Today we have River Wood from Secular Hub here to discuss their deconversion story with us. River, sounds, how are sounds, you today? Sounds pretty vanilla to me. I know. <laughs> pretty and and river is a lot of things and i bet being vanilla is not one of them river appreciates it well with that be to the delicious oh. dish on npr <laughs> <laughs> nailed it i think that's a good segue river is extremely funny and we had the pleasure of hearing river's bit at secular hub which is how we got the opportunity to meet you And uh, so, yeah, so I've been really looking forward to doing this podcast and we really appreciate all the stuff that you are doing. And with that being said, I would love for you to take a moment, introduce yourself and let people know where they can find you. And uh, yeah, but you do the pleasant intro. Oh, I have to introduce myself now. Okay. Well, I'm River. I'm one of the volunteers and members around Secular Hub in Denver, where Isaac and Tim just were a couple of weeks ago for the Seth Andrews talk. It was really fantastic for that talk. That whole weekend was just awesome. A lot of great conversations came out of that. What else? Let's see. I just graduated college last year. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Up in a fundy cult, which is what we're here to talk about. Mm -hmm. That's there's a, there's a whole story. Yeah. And then you have a YouTube channel. So I do. Have, check. That's right. I have to plug myself. I yeah. Shameless plugs in this podcast. Shameless. Oh, shameless. Yeah. If you go on YouTube and search for Rivers Woodshed, that's my channel. I take fundies out to the woodshed. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right, River, let's start at the very beginning. Let's just get there. Were you born into a religious family? I indeed I was. 
Yeah. So this is going to be a long story and take a little bit of setup. I was born into what is essentially a fundamentalist cult. And we're going to talk a little bit later about what a cult is, what how that's defined, because it's important. We were just talking before the podcast about defining our terms and making sure people know what we mean. And we just actually had a talk at the hub last weekend about cults, and it's still very fuzzy. We're not sure where to click from religion to cult. It's a weird line. I like to say it's like, what's the difference between a pond and a lake? <laughs> yeah. Right. Size. It's like that. A cult is a small, unpopular religion, and a religion is a large, popular cult. Yeah. There, I love it. That's great. So if you go looking for this group on the interwebs, you'll there's a Wikipedia article under two by twos, if you spell out the word two, as in the number two. This church prides itself on being sort of special and set apart from all the other religions, just like all the other religions do. It's a bit of a strange thing. So technically, we didn't consider ourselves to be called two by twos. And in fact, we were all taught growing up basically that our church did not have a name at all because to put a name on it made us like all the rest of the churches and they were worldly and we were different. Mm -hmm. We were brought up with the idea of apostolic succession. Now I'd never heard that term before, but that just basically means that the claim that their ministry is descended directly from people who actually were there with Jesus back in the day. The Catholic Church claims oh. this. Lots of churches claim so. Well, we're doing it exactly the same way they did back then. And therefore, we're the right church and everyone else is doing it wrong. And everyone finds their own specific doctrines by which they make themselves to be special. And this is what mm -hmm. causes every schism that's ever happened, by the way. So this one in particular kind of got its moniker from the fact that its ministers go out and travel around two by two. It'll be either two unmarried women or two unmarried men. They are supposed to be homeless. They go around with basically the contents of their suitcases in a car usually and stay at members' houses which leads wow. to all sorts of problems, which maybe we'll get into later. So it's purported to be this homeless itinerant ministry where these preachers go out and they cover a certain geographical area and they're there to go out and recruit for the church. They host what they call gospel meetings on Sunday mm -hmm. afternoons, which are usually held in like school auditoriums or other public buildings that they can rent. Very few people actually get recruited into this group. Most of the growth comes from children born into it. Okay. And so that function doesn't really happen. Sunday mornings, meetings are held in the living room of one of the members of a group that's assigned together in the area, depending whether it's more rural, urban, how many people they get together to fill a living room. And that's, and then the owner of the house is also the elder of the meeting. And then it's a little format. You sit through, you come in, you sit down at the appointed time on Sunday morning. Basically it opens up with singing a hymn out of our hymn book, a cappella. There's no instruments or anything like that. And your singing is dependent on someone to start on the right pitch and at the right tempo. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't have anyone who 
knows music in your meeting, it's very dreary and dreadful. Sure. It's dreary and dreadful even when you do, I should say. <laughs> it's just, it can be a little bit worse. <laughs> yeah, it can definitely get worse. At its best, it's awful. <laughs> I love it. At its best, it's awful. <laughs> I'm a rock and roll kid. Like, I yeah the child of the 90s kind of 80s and 90s and like yeah christian hymns they suck oh <laughs> let's not split hairs that's, over it it's garbage that's, that's how hillsong took over the world for a little bit it's dreck yeah it's dreary <laughs> dreck it's like eddie izzard the thing about the anglican church oh lord this uh, yeah. <laughs> goes on forever uh. Yeah, you're citing one of my favorite comedians. Sorry, I think it's Susie Izzard now, I should point out. Yeah. That's fun. Did yeah. Was everyone expected to do the two-by-two two at some point? Was that like a rite of passage, or was it just random, or was the children of this religion expected to participate? Oh, really good question. So the preachers, the ministers, that we called them workers— and this is one one hallmark of a cult is you have your own special jargon for stuff. Mm-hmm. We called them workers and not everyone would be workers. No, it was considered to be a calling where God would speak to your heart and tell you that's what you should do. And it was just left at that, basically. And if you felt that you had this calling, why you would talk to some of the senior workers about it, and then they would either say, yep, you can start here or else give you a list of hoops to jump through before you could or whatever. You had to be baptized and you had to be what was called professing. So this is another jargon word from this group. To back up a second to get where Mm -hmm. this goes, the Sunday morning meetings that opened with the terrible music, then it goes into prayer. And so everyone bows their heads and is quiet and one person at a time randomly throughout the room will offer up some prayer which are usually geared toward the needs of our little group and our workers often foreign lands, spreading the gospel and stuff like that. Then maybe another hymn or two, and then it's time for testimonies. And that's where you just stand up and you share whatever the Lord has laid on your heart to say about whatever you've been reading in the Bible. Sunday mornings are are free for all. Mm-hmm. Wednesday nights, the exact same thing happens, except for it's a Bible study. So it's like everybody's doing the same chapter at the same time. Gotcha. gotcha. And so born into this type of practice, did your parents have normal jobs or work affiliations? So my parents had both been workers before, and I think that's how they met, if I recall correctly. Gotcha. My dad had been what they called in the work in the U.S. as well as overseas. He volunteered to go overseas, even behind the Iron Curtain. And he had, there's just a whole lot of really gnarly stories there. Like he ended up arrested by secret police in communist Romania and like long stories. But I think he sincerely believed that he his mission in life was to go spread the gospel. Mm-hmm. And he definitely was not in it for money because it didn't pay. Mm-hmm. My dad was very much a true believer, I think. And my mom served in this ministry too for a much shorter time, just a few years, but in the US and in Mexico. Okay. And then they met. Then they got married. Getting married meant you can't be a worker anymore. Uh, okay. okay. So they dropped out, got married, 
and then <laughs> had kids and I'm their oldest. Yeah. I was born in the late seventies. So I'm mm-hmm. like a late Gen X. The weird thing about my parents in particular is their age differences. I'm not like no normal people who had late Gen X parents who were early Gen X or whatever. My mom was a boomer. So she was born right after World War II. And my dad came from a generation before that. Gotcha. Uh, that that made it extra weird. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Where would you like to go next? <laughs> yeah. So so when you started getting older, did were you ever bought into the religion? Did you believe it? Did you or did you just participate to humor your family? Or was there was there enough indoctrination for you to jump on board and be gun gun ho? Yeah, I was really bought into it. It would not be fair to say that I was 100% bought in because I always had doubts, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was, I went through a lot of mental trauma and anxiety grappling with those doubts, but I was bought in, in a biological sense. I came to learn in college about neuroscience and how brains are wired. When you When you tell a kid that there's a God watching them at all times, and it can send you to hell for eternity or punish you here on earth. They call it putting the fear of God in a child, like colloquially. You've probably yeah. heard this a lot all, down in Texas. Oh, yeah. Put the fear of God in kids. That is literally what is being done. So the deep down region of your brain that stores all your fear memories, like the things that hurt you and you want to avoid again, that's stored down in your amygdala. It's a very primal region of the brain. It was one of the earliest to evolve. I think it predates mammals, but don't quote me on that. But it's like way before our outer cortex, right? This Mm -hmm. is very primal to our survival. That is where fear of God is actually stored in your brain, is in your fear center. And so when you have doubts, that gets activated. Then you have this fear and like your body gets flooded with these fear chemicals, adrenaline and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you have a very real physiological response to this. Now, the evangelicals, all the Christians will tell you that's the spirit of the Lord convicting you in your soul or whatever, right? Mm. But this is your fight or flight response going off in your brain. That's all it is. Yep. I love that. And that rhetoric, it tells me we will definitely have some similarities in our backgrounds because just that rhetoric, put the fear of God in them. That's the Holy Spirit getting your attention, or even it's a spirit of evil or spirit of fear is something that they would say. And that's the enemy attacking you. So your rhetoric is very similar to what I'm still exposed to and around down here. Yeah. Did your did the religion that you grew up in was there much emphasis on in times preaching or was it more of if you're not a part of our special group, then that means eternity in hell? We didn't have very much of the like the hellfire and damnation kind of stuff. And we didn't have people wouldn't shout or run around waving Bibles in the air. It was very kind of milk toast. Gospel meetings in the Sunday afternoon ones with the workers would get up and in, in, at a microphone and they would just give a sermon. And it was usually very boring. I used to appreciate the ones that were good storytellers because that at least you didn't hate being there. Sure. Yeah. But when it's very dry and very, yeah, and we're like 
the true religion and everyone else is like going to hell and stuff. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It, it's terrible. But I was, I wanted to wrap back to your previous question a little bit about mm-hmm. being bought in when, so the way you would become a professing Christian in this group is about once a year, twice a year, maybe in the gospel meetings, they would do what they call test the meeting. It's basically the altar call time. Mm-hmm. And if it's your turn to profess your, that you're going to follow Christ, you stand up during the last two verses of this hymn as we all sing it or whatever. And then the last verse, everybody else stand up and join them. So it's a moving experience because it's they're there with you. I professed or another word for that was made my choice. I was about 11 or 12 years old. And I remember very specifically the reason that I stood up in that meeting was because they scared the ever living fuck out of me. Mm-hmm. They, and it was women workers too. Like it's not just men who do this, but this was the nicest little old ladies that you would care to know. They, they stayed at our house. They ate meals with us. They were the sweetest people, but that day they absolutely terrorized me and scared me. Like they, they put the picture in my head that we could have a fiery car crash on the way home from that meeting that night and die. And if I died, then my soul would go to hell. Well, it, it was full on fight or flight response. I was absolutely yeah. terrified. My knees were shaking. Like they, they scared me enough to stand up in that meeting. And even though I had not, I didn't want to do it. I really didn't. I, it was not something I was excited to do because making that decision made me responsible for offering up prayers and testimonies during the meetings. Okay. Otherwise, I could just sit there and zone out. I didn't sure. have to participate. Participating now meant that I had to stand up in front of that group of people and have something to say about the Bible every Sunday and every Wednesday yeah. at 11, 12 years old. So it was definitely not something I wanted to do. <laughs> Yeah. And the brain is so plastic at that moment when you're told, hey, you can go to hell and you won't be saved. That statement isn't isn't something that you say, oh, just take it with a grain of salt. At that age, with that impression, that's a serious narrow pathway. That it's a big deal. In. Yeah. And it wasn't something I could take back. I have yeah. now just committed my entire life to serve. They say it's God or Jesus, but obviously it's this particular church. I've committed mm-hmm. my t- entire life to this with that decision that I made at 12 years old or less. Yeah. And there was no way I could take it back. Yeah. It's it, fascinating. So you're obviously no longer with this organization. And so what do you remember what some of the first incidents or situations that happened that started pulling you away from? When did either cognitive dissonance start or, hey, I'm going to rebel against this or I'm going to push back? Do you remember when those type of things started to happen? Yeah. So I don't think it was, but like a couple of years later, maybe there was a book that went around that got circulated about this particular cult or sect or church, or we'll get into the definitions later, but it was called The Secret Sect is the name of the book. And it's been a while out of print. And I think what happened was, is some of the people went and bought up any copies they could find and destroyed them Mm because they're really hard Mm -hmm. to find now. But it went through the history of where this church came from. 
Now, like I was telling you earlier, they basically claim that they have apostolic succession. I remember growing up, like we always heard from the workers that, oh, we did this just they did on the shores of Galilee. Jesus sent his his disciples out two by two. Mm -hmm. So we were always given the impression that this is just how it's always been. This is not, however, the case. Mm -hmm. This church was actually founded by two guys from Ireland in about 1890-ish. They've mm -hmm. been ministers in a church over there called Grace Mission or something like that. It's in the Wikipedia. Yeah. They basically kind of got kicked out of that church, started their own thing, realized it wasn't going very far in Ireland, and sailed for California. They landed in California right before the turn of the 20th century and started holding tent revivals, just like was going on all over the place already. Like tent yeah. revivals were a big thing with many different sects. Organizations, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was just a convenient way to get started and get people a place to sit down in the shade and, and thump your Bible at them. That was just basically how that started. And yeah, that's so learning that really made me call into question what I'd been taught because I was pretty sure I'd been taught that this had been around forever. And here's this book and they've got newspaper clippings. They've got people, family names in there that I know. And like, they seem to have their shit together. <clears throat> And I went and asked my parents about that. And my dad said, yeah, that's true. Because his mother knew one of those founders personally. Wow. Wow. And I'm like, so why do they tell us that it came from somewhere else? And did I you... forget what the answer was, but it just seemed like he dismissed it as not that important because mm -hmm. the truth of what they had was more important than the founders. Yeah. Did you end up reading that book or did you just I did. hear about it? Oh, okay. I did. It went through our house and I think my dad read it. I don't know if my mom read it or not, but I read it. I was an avid reader as a kid because we didn't have TV or radio or anything like that in our house. That was worldly. But I, I read everything I could get my hands on. So I read that book. Um, wow. And yeah, it just made me more suspicious. I love that. It's it's and it's just a little thing. It's whoa, something's off. And it's so funny how that can sneak in and it can leave you just like with your circuits kind of firing weird. This isn't it's cognitive dissonance. It's the beginnings of it. It gets worse typically before it breaks, but it doesn't take much to start that process. That was one of the straws, one of the yeah. many straws, right? But yeah, it adds up after a while. That didn't make me actually doubt Christianity. Mm-hmm. That took a while longer, but what started happening was first off, I became a teenager. So there was all that stuff I was going through, mm -hmm. but what happened a couple of years later, I think I was about 14, 15, something like that. My parents as former workers, they had sway in the group. People knew them, like everybody in the state knew who they were in our church. People from multiple states and multiple countries and stuff knew who they were like they had a lot of social status, I guess I would say. But gradually over time, they made friends with more people who were thought to be sinners or on the outs with the group, uh -huh. people who'd been disciplined for being divorced or various things. And they had the patience to sit and listen to people's stories. And the thing that really set both of them off was their this group's treatment of divorce and remarriage that was forbidden like once you're married you're married for life and they would even tell people who were like say a couple was both on their second spouse 
they would tell them, you need to get divorced and get remarried to your previous spouse in order to be saved. Wow. Whoa. Like, like that kind of shit. There mm-hmm. were cases where there was severe spousal abuse. Yeah. And there was told, just pray more or be nicer to him or things like that. And yeah. th- those stories add up. And that turns into real people with real consequences versus this abstract thing of these unmarried celibate people telling you to stay in a marriage that is destructive. Yeah. What fucking right do they have to do that? Yeah. Yeah. But that's a common trend. We were, we were chuckling about after watching the documentary about Bill Gothard and the shiny, happy people one, everyone's chatting about it is that here's this guy, Bill Gothard, who is never married never had any children. And he's telling huge demographics, including my parents, like how to raise families and how to do it biblically. And then that's, I think that kind of stuff does create environments where spousal abuse happens, like what you're describing. And that just is a common trend in a lot of different forms of religious adherence and belief. And were you hearing these stories as a teenager? Were these people coming into to your house and your parents were talking to them and you're overhearing it, these stories and processing it. Yeah. Cause we didn't have TV or video games or other things a lot of times. So I'd, I'd sit and listen to the adults talk. Yeah. yeah. And so I picked up on a lot of this stuff and my parents would talk about it with each other because it eventually came to a head. Mm-hmm. They started speaking up about it and being like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't punish people for this because why should, why are we kicking them out of the church? Why are we kicking them out of the love of God for doing something that they could literally save their own life? One that, one that did it was a couple that kind of became like an aunt and uncle to me a bit. They were friends with my parents for a long time. One of them, her first husband was literally about to murder her like for real. Like it was bad. She literally was in danger of her life. She left the country to get away. Wow. Wow. And what happened was in meetings, her second husband, and this was his second wife, her husband was raised Catholic, not in our church. Mm. And so he was allowed to participate in our meetings because he was raised in the wrong church and therefore couldn't have known better. Gotcha. But the wife, she was raised in our church and she was therefore expected to know better And they told her she had to go back and get married to her first husband again. The one that had literally threatened to kill her. So weird. It's just so backwards. And because she wouldn't do that, they forbid her from speaking in the meetings. So basically, this woman in our meetings almost wore a scarlet letter A, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. she's the only one in the meeting who's not allowed to speak. But she was religiously there every time because she felt like it was true. She was was just obeying what they told her. And was this something that was frustrating for your parents? Did they have a hard time with this or was this something you had a hard time with or both, obviously, but. But yeah, all around, we were all like, my parents had a hard time with it and I'm a rebellious teenager. I think this is bullshit, but you know, I'm growing up in the nineties too, in Mm -hmm. suburban Southern California. I was just more liberal. Right. speaking. And, And it didn't seem right to me to make someone stay in a place where they're getting hit because. No, I was stuck in a, I was stuck in a place where I was getting hit. Yeah. And that didn't seem right to me. But did your parents ever decide to stop practicing the religion that did their frustrations grow or did they double down? Their frustrations grew and they start, well, 
my mom is not confrontational. I don't think she ever spoke up, but my dad spoke up. He would talk with people about it at meetings and at our annual conventions and stuff like that. Like he was legitimately trying to change things. He's like, you guys, you're misquoting the Bible and the Bible over here says we can do this. Like we need to be treating these people better. And they basically mm. told him, shut up or we'll kick you out. That wow. That is doesn't that remind you isaac like we've talked about this on multiple occasions it's like human it, it sounds like your dad was literally trying to use the bible to justify his natural human goodness that's trying to penetrate through all of this other religious bullshit. because at somewhere deep inside your dad he knows a woman getting hit by a man is wrong and that this should not be allowed or sanctioned in any way. There should be some grace for this. And he's trying to rationalize that goodness because that's just a correct statement, but he's having to try and rationalize it through his religious stuff to these, to his contemporaries in the church. And they're going, Nope, we need to stick to the letter of law. And it just throws you off. I just always think that's fascinating when the good parts of us try to penetrate through what religion's trying to just get us to sweep under the rug. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like we had the Wednesday night Bible study meeting in our house at the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, basically workers came to our house and said, we're, you either need to shut up about this or we're going to take the meeting out of your house. Who and, were the decision makers? Oh, yeah. So leadership. Um Good stuff. Basically, the church is organized by like fields. And so mm -hmm. one pair of workers is responsible for a field. And this could be the size of a county. It could be the size of several counties. Just depends on how much population of people there are in the area. And then it's divided up into regions, a larger space. So I think like, for example, California and Arizona, maybe Nevada are like a region. And then there's other state groups that are regions and then some countries and whatever. And then that will be headed up by what's called an overseer, mm. a creepy term, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the overseer. The overseer. Yeah. Sounds and like the, a Bond villain. <laughs> yeah. The overseer is the only one who doesn't have what's called a companion. He's by himself. And it's of always, a, it's always a male. The, ma the male workers are definitely priority ahead of the female workers, of course. They're the bottom of the totem pole. But anyway, so the overseer basically is somebody who has he has total authority over all the workers and hence over all the members in his region. There are some variances between regions in terms of policies and rules and stuff like that. But generally they're fully responsible. All the money presumably trickles up to them somehow. And these are people who just have no accountability to anyone. They are not voted on. Basically, the, each next overseer is chosen by the previous one. As far as I know, there's not, or there's maybe like a committee meeting to do that, something like sure. that, but it's definitely not voted on by the membership. There was a <laughs> side story, right? <laughs> just recently, actually last year, the overseer of the Oregon and I think a couple other states region was found dead from a heart attack in a hotel. And this was unexpected. So there were no plans yet for who was to succeed him as overseer. And so there are people are looking on his laptop and his phone and stuff like that for trying to figure this out. 
they found a lot of porn for one thing, but they also found, they also oh, found, <laughs> yeah, well, y'all, this joke just, you already know where it's going, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, I've been face palming since you started. I was like, when's the eight ball, the hooker going to come out? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there was any of that, but there were, anyway, there were definitely like hotel accounts and underage girls involved. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. The whole thing's just gross. And that guy apparently was friends with my uncle for 40 years. Um, I don't know if my uncle ever ends up listening to this. I I wonder if he knew any of this was going on or if he was just completely blindsided by it. Who mm. knows? Who knows? That's crazy. crazy so did they ever find an overseer to replace him? Yeah, I think he's been replaced at this point. I wonder if well, it was like a fight I, to the death. And I of course, wa- they sent out letters. Oh, we are deeply disturbed to learn that brother was found with satanic materials. Like they, they fra- always right. phrase it in a very delicate yeah, sanitized way, sanitized sort of way. And we're working to fix things. Yeah, yeah. he. It was. We found less than ideal material. On yeah, it's it, that's what that's where we like loop into. I was waiting to see like where's the power concentrated because you got all these workers and you got you guys doing this and I'm like where's the power concentrated and then sure enough eventually the overseer shows up as it were and yeah. that's very cultish in my opinion. So I think this is a good time and a good moment for us to do something we said earlier and define this is from your opinion or definitions in which maybe we do get into the definitions is this a cult i let's jump into that because i i think it's a conversation worth having definitely so i started figuring this out when i was younger because actually i don't know maybe about 10 years ago when i started really going down the rabbit hole of psychology on the internet I always thought I just came from a slightly weird Christian denomination or sect or whatever, because when I was a kid, I would ask kids at school, ask me what kind of Christian I am. There's Catholics and there's Baptists and there's Mormons and there's whatever. What kind of Mm -hmm. Christian are we? And I was told we're non-denominational. We don't have a name. We're just, we're just Christian, like Jesus Mm -hmm. said. And so I just took this and figured that was fairly normal, like maybe a little bit weird, but Christian is Christian. Right. It wasn't until probably, I don't know, early 2010s that I started going down the internet rabbit hole on this and looking it up. And it's, I see these lists, American Psychiatric Association, like, how do you know a cult? And I'm going down the list and I'm like, yeah, uh uh-huh, check. (laughs) Yeah. But like, you know, out of 11 things, like eight of them were checked and three weren't. So do we have a cult? Do we not have a cult? Like mm, it took mm-hmm. me a while to understand what subtlety is, but to give a couple of examples, I have a, I have one of these articles up here. <clears throat> the group displays an excessively zealous and unquestioning commitment to its leader and whether he is alive or dead regards his belief system, ideology, and practices as the truth as law. Okay. Let's kind of iffy on this one for me because people inside this group did call it the truth, which was one thing, but they didn't worship the original leaders. They tried to disavow the original leaders, but they do worship the workers. They obey the workers and they definitely kind of worship the overseers. The overseers carry a lot of weight and what they say goes. They send an order out. You can't have a stereo in your house. They send someone like my dad out to enforce that. Wow. 
Wow. So unquestioning. Yeah, very much. Yes, but not but exactly also, as. But there's not. But there's not a figure like Joseph Smith. There is no dead figure that we worship except Jesus. The next one is <clears throat> questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. Absolutely. My parents Check. got kicked out for dissent. Mind-altering practices such as meditation, chanting, speaking in tongues, denunciation sessions, or debilitating work routines are used in excess and serve to suppress doubts about the group and its leaders. Maybe the meetings, the ritual that we do, the prayers and stuff that those psychologically put everyone on the same page. Like we know this from scientific research. This is how you get people on the same wavelength, not only just colloquially, but like literally you're Mm -hmm. putting their brains on the same wavelength. So sort of ish, the leadership dictates sometimes in great detail, how members should think, act, and feel. For example, members must get permission to date, change jobs, or marry, or leaders prescribe what to wear, where to live, whether to have children, how to discipline children, and so forth. Okay, yeah, they definitely did tell us what we were supposed to wear. There was a very strict and rigid sort of gendered dress code. Men were not allowed to have long hair, and beards were frowned on, although some people had mustaches. Sure. For women, Hmm. of course, women always catch the brunt of all the rules in a church. Always. (laughs) So for women, it's long skirts or dresses and can't show cleavage, no makeup, no jewelry. They're not allowed to cut their hair at all. Like it has Hmm. to be long. They either have, they wear it down or up usually. So yeah, there's very strict rules about that. And you There's some of that in the Wikipedia page, and there's a history of that. There's a reason they also got the moniker of black stockings. It's because that was a rule for a while. And it ended up, people figured out it was a rule because one of of the overseers liked black stockings on women. And so that just became a rule. (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) Good grief. (laughs) But um, some of these rules have been fudged a little bit in some places nowadays, but these were pretty strict where I grew up and when I grew up. See, it's funny. I didn't have like real strict rules about my clothing in general, but man, when Sunday morning rolled around, you better be falling into a very, I was had to, I, we didn't have formal inspection, but you could tell when you were getting ready to go to church, if you walked out and you weren't, I always knew if my dad wasn't happy with what the way I was dressed or the way my sister was dressed. And it was like, nope, go try again. And then you would, and then we would go to church. And I was just, I, that always rubbed me the wrong way. I was just like, what does it matter? I was forced to wear like dress shirts and pants and ties and stuff like that. Complete. Like there was no option. Oh, I'm None. still, listen, it's, you will do this or we will whip you. To, to this day, I am rebel. I will not wear a tie. I know my wife says I look good in a tie, but I still have this. Even when I do formal dress attire and I'm going to go do something, it's like I still won't wear a tie. <laughs> I just will not do it. It's and, not me. <laughs> and you're a and you're a cis dude. I'm different. Like I'm differently gendered, and so that was even worse. Yeah, I have serious trauma around that shit. And that was one thing I can't even imagine what navigating that must have been like, especially when I think about just, I was a big kid 
So I got picked on about my weight quite a bit. And I know I still carry a little bit of that to this day. We had a joke here at the end of our last podcast we did about me dancing and like having an aversion to dancing. We talked with one of our other, one of the therapists that came on, we talked about it. And it's because I got picked on when I was a kid. And so I have my own little notch of that, that I navigate. And when you look at the greater context of the world and what other people go through, and it's been an experience doing this podcast, having, hearing other people's stories and what they've experienced, realizing that's like right over here in this, I can't even imagine what dealing with some of these other things would be like. Yeah. And let's, let's, for the listeners who don't know, we'll get into that part of River's story, I think, right after we do this decide if this was a cult or not, and then to give context to that. Because we definitely got a little hook in there for the people who are listening. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. This, I don't know, that we might have to get to a part two because this cult thing (laughs) is taking a while. But I want to be, I really want to dive into this and tear it apart so people can really wrap their heads around the complexity of exactly what is a cult and what is cult behavior and what is cult thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking to wrap it back to the other thing, yeah, there was no navigating that to answer your question, Mm -hmm. Tim, there was no navigating. It was, I did what I was told or I got hit. Yeah. And so that's the, would do a leader tell you how to discipline your children? Yeah. So like during those conversations that I would sit around and listen to the adults, I've many times heard my dad telling people how they should discipline their kids and how to keep their kids quiet during meeting, because there was no special program for the kids. Kids sat with the adults and they had to sit still and be quiet didn't matter what age they were. And my dad's solution to kids fussing in meeting was to take them outside and spank them till they stop. In other words, in other words, till they run out of breath and can't cry anymore. Yeah. And that's his that's physical his, abuse. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. It's physical abuse. I heard many times my dad recommend people physical abuse. Yeah. And he definitely did not spare it on me for sure. Yeah. And mm-hmm. his preferred weapon was a leather belt, mm. but he would hit me with a fist, with an open hand, with knuckles. It didn't matter. I don't know. Maybe we should have put a content warning on this mm-hmm. piece of the podcast, we, but like, we this, can is, this, is, this shit is rampant in yeah. fundamentalism. It is absolutely rampant. Child abuse is rampant. Mm-hmm. So yeah, checks that box. <clears throat> Got, yeah, check. Check. We can come back to that later. <laughs> next <laughs> next part of a cult definition is the group is elitist, claiming a special exalted status for itself, its leaders, and its members. For example, the leader is considered the Messiah, a special being, an avatar, or the group or the leader is on a special mission to save humanity. Okay, so we didn't have the for example part, but we definitely did claim a special exalted status for ourselves because we were taught that we were the little remnant of the disciples from Galilee still alive today. And we're a small group. We knew we were a small group because we had to travel multiple towns away to go meet with others like us. And we were taught that like we were the saved ones and everyone around us is the world. It's the world. So there's that check. (laughs) The next one is almost the same says the group has a polarized us versus them mentality, which may cause conflict with the wider society. So yeah, that idea that you're the one saved by God and the other, everyone else around you, the kids you ride the school bus with, you go to school with, you go to work with, you're you're in the supermarket Mm -hmm. with, all those people are them. Yes. They are other. 
Yeah, they're right. worldly. The yeah. term I always got told was they're worldly, uh-huh. and you're not a part of the world. So, I, as you're going through these check marks, I'm also I know we're doing them in relation to your specific experience as well. But these are common check marks around religion at large, especially when I think about behavior of Christian nationalists and things that we're encountering right now on the broader term. These are check marks for these things as well. Yeah, I'm trying to show people that are on the fence. My religion isn't a cult. Yeah, the yeah, it, it probably is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Arguably. The next, <laughs> the next one is the leader is not accountable to any authorities. Check. We have mm-hmm. overseers who don't seem to be accountable to anyone, and they seem to get away with a lot of stuff when they're out of sight of anyone watching them. So yeah, mm-hmm. check. Okay. The group teaches or implies that its supposedly exalted ends justify whatever means it deems necessary. This may result in members participating in behaviors or activities they would have considered reprehensible or unethical before joining the group. For example, lying to family or friends or collecting money for bogus charities. This mm-hmm. is one I would say probably not so much. I don't know that this was really that much of a thing, but of course, mm-hmm. whatever actions they took are justified by saying we're, we have the truth, we have the gospel. And so I guess if you say that telling a, a couple, they have to stay married when there's abuse or whatever, that's an action taken and they're justifying it somehow. So It just, it depends on the situation. So it's something that floats, but uh, as it stands still, we're like very lopsided in a specific direction. So no check on this one, but just a mark, we come back to it later. I don't know. (laughs) Next one, the leadership induces feelings of shame and or guilt in order to influence and control members. Often this is done through peer pressure and subtle forms of persuasion. Check. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Shame and guilt especially around sex. And we talked yeah. about purity culture. Seth Andrews's talk was about purity culture. Yep. <clears throat> this is a big thing. Like we're all victims or a bit along for the ride when it comes to our biology and our hormones and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that's a very predictable way that you can use to control people through, through shaming them either. Pu- well, shame is more of a public thing being shamed in mm-hmm. front of others. And the guilt is the internal bit yeah. that you have. Yeah. Okay. So check for sure. Next item, subservience to the leader or group requires members to cut ties with family and friends and radically alter the personal goals and activities they had before joining the group. Okay. I didn't really join the group and Mm -hmm. my parents didn't join the group either. Their parents did. My parents grew up in it, but they do not, they definitely do not encourage you to have friendships outside of the church. Like many do it's, we want you, this is your circle. This is your group. And you don't really go outside of that very much because why would you, they're all worldly and they're just going to lead you astray. All I could think of when you mentioned that one is that kind of depends because I know Christian groups that are like that. You better just drop it all and follow this. It is dependent upon the group or the niche of it. But I would definitely say that is not something that is not present in it's a religious spectrum. practice. It's a spectrum. Definitely. Yeah. It is like how much of it is a thing. Like my younger brother, he ended up joining the Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, wow. 
Like they will absolutely just cut you right the fuck off. If you step out of line, they will shun you. Even your parents or your kids will shun you. It's awful. Our group's not quite like that, but many people did stop talking to my parents after they were kicked out. And some family members just kind of, they still talk, but there's a wall there. There's an invisible sure. wall there now. Mm-hmm. And Tim, I think you've talked about that kind of yeah. thing a lot. Okay. Check on that one. The group is preoccupied with bringing in new members. Okay. No on this one, because they don't really try very hard to recruit new people. Most of the, and they're still, they're actually shrinking because people Mm -hmm. are having fewer kids, but kids being born into the group are really the only way they sustain it. Yeah, It's that whole childhood indoctrination thing. If you guys have heard of the four to 14 window, right? Yeah. You got to get them young. And that's like, that's where you hook. That's where the hook is. Uh But I think it's worth mentioning that religion at large, especially evangelicalism is all about that right now. It's you look at like Hillsong and the outreach at trying to hook youth in and recruitment and church growth. Isaac and I are watching a giant church grow up here locally in Kerrville right now. And we're like, why? So in other instances, that is a check. It may not be in your particular group that you went through, but it is a check on the larger scale. For listeners who might not know, River, do you mind going into what 4 to 14 is about? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So you can just Google this for dear listener. Google 4 to 14 window. It's There was some research done by, I want to say it was like a Christian data polling company yeah, or something it was like that mm-hmm. national association of evangelicals the name that sticks in my head is barna group but maybe i'm mixing this up anyway they did a survey and they found out that the ideal ages to get someone committed as a christian to do the thing like i we called making my choice or whatever mm-hmm. profess belief or do the altar call or whatever the ideal ages for this are between four and 14 is when you want to snag kids because before four years old, they don't really, they don't do complete sentences. <clears throat> and so they don't really understand like simple actions and things. And after 14, if they're not thoroughly indoctrinated, they're going to be more skeptical of the Christian narrative to put it yeah. mildly. Yeah. So that's the ideal window that they want to get a hold of kids and get them thoroughly indoctrinated and get them in. And of course, being born in just is more of an advantage because like from your very earliest memories, you're just already immersed in this mm-hmm. way of thinking. I, uh, I actually haven't shared this on the podcast, but I was really curious about banks giving loans to churches. And I was curious about, obviously, there's financial security on the bank's part because they can build, take over the assets of the land and the building. But I actually went through a few business plans for churches, and one of the business plans that I saw, they made a statement that our strategy is to offer free childcare in a low-income area, and that will transition into future members because they will be a part of the church at a young age. And so this church's fiscal strategy was that they have enough members at the moment to carry them financially and that they expect a ticking growth because they're in an area where childcare is hard for people to afford and therefore they believe they will have lifetime members and i yeah oh yeah get them while they're young 
but hey, we're also trying to expand kids programs at Secular Hub too, because people, the other side of that is people need a place to bring their kids to interact Mm -hmm. with other kids and interact with other adults while their kids are being managed. This is just a human need. Yes. Churches are exploiting this human need to get young brains to brainwash. We're speaking to that from a humanistic perspective, saying humans have this need. We should try to fill it in that way because people need that. They don't want to go to a church, but it's not to be found anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it, and as we've moved away as a society from this tribe mentality where you have aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and uh, multiple members of the tribe all helping raise children as we've become independent family units, things of this nature become more and more important and become more and more relevant. It's part of, it's part of our nature. We need that social connection. We need that, those groups, those cocoons of people around us. I was having that sensation because we, truth be told, us here in this little town in Texas, we're in this kind of an isolation bubble. I know that there are some larger communities in San Antonio and Austin, but we don't make it up there very often. And there's not a lot in this town. The few people that are, we already know. And so just coming up and visiting you guys at Secular Hub and chatting with Seth and doing all that, it was so refreshing to go in a room of people that more that Sunday morning we spent with you guys when I went in there and sat down at, t- at a table with a bunch of older gentlemen that I don't know from Adam and I had freaking good amazing conversations I mean we were there we got there at what 10 15 Isaac we didn't leave until like mid-afternoon yeah. and it was so freaking refreshing And I had some debate. I had some conversation, so many different fun conversations while I was there. And it was a reminder of the importance of community. And it's a deficiency I feel like I have in my life just living here, being where I am. And that's something that Isaac and I are both wanting to move into and start working into. Because as you put it, there is a huge need there, whether it's young or old. Yeah, it's a human need. We all have the human needs and we have to stop letting religion hijack that and start doing it in ways that are healthier for humans and less divisive. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so, I feel like cults just work in the absolute opposite direction, but they use some of that human need. To, they feed off of that to fuel themselves. Yeah. What what, did we get through all the checkpoints? What's our consensus? Are are we in a cult or no? There's a there's there's a few more, but they're a little shorter and quicker to deal with. (laughs) One is the group is preoccupied with making money. Not so much. I don't know where the money goes at the top. There are some members within the group that seem to be very wealthy. I don't know where the money goes, but it's not a registered five hundred one c three, and they don't keep records and they don't pay taxes. So like. But is there, somewhere. Is, there, I don't know. is there any, is there any transaction of money? Yeah. People do give, they do give money to the workers. They give cars, like they'll donate cars yeah. and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mostly the workers travel around and stay in people's houses. So they eat for free a lot and sleep for free a lot. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the expenses that you would have in paying for missionaries are just covered by people Hosting. giving use of their resources. And so there's yeah. some, Maybe there's not quite so much cash transaction involved, but any cash transactions that do go into it get filtered up toward the most senior of the workers. 
So there is financial transactions. Yeah. Yeah. There's something going on, but there's no public accounting of it. And so I presume the money is laundered somehow. Yeah. And then, of course, speaking on a larger term, you don't have to go look far to see the abuses and the use of money at the on the larger scale in religious communities and large churches and let alone mega churches and the things that go on with them. They are all about the money. Oh, yeah. Two by twos pride themselves on not being about money. Yeah, I can tell. Because it's like we're special. We're unique. We're not worldly. They do money. We don't like. And so what it ends up being is they have sermons where they talk about how much they don't talk about money. (laughs) (laughs) So it's almost a pride thing around the we don't do that as opposed to other churches. Right. There's no collection plate passed or any donation box or anything like that. It's all very on the DL. Yep. So it weren't for all the other things. I kind of respect that. But hey. (laughs) (laughs) and then they occasionally have sermons in the gospel meetings where they tell you that's how it's done it's on the dl yeah (laughs) so wink wink wink, yeah almost to the end members are expected to devote inordinate amounts of time to the group and group related activities Mm. we're not the worst on this but also we're Mm. not the best three meetings a week so basically wednesday nights and all day sunday that is a lot of time especially for a kid when you go into school and stuff like that like mm-hmm. when i was little it felt like my whole life revolved around this shit yeah sure. yeah the day you just i will never forget when i actually told my parents i didn't want to go to church anymore and i got my sundays to myself and it was like a whole new freaking world because i was busy i was like working a full time job and doing school and studies And so you get to that one day and I've got to go, for me, it was just half the day. You go get there at 10, you wouldn't leave it until 12, 1230, unless they had a revival and it went longer to one or two. And then you would get out and you would be free. But when I let that go, oh my God, that we still talk about that. Like getting your Sundays back is one of the best parts of deconversion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I tried telling my parents I didn't want to go anymore. And it's no, you live under our roof. You go with us or we hit you. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. So there was no option. All right. Mm. Members are encouraged or required to live and or socialize only with other group members. That's not explicitly stated. You should not have friends outside, but it's generally thought of that way. And then the last one is the most loyal members or the true believers feel there can be no life outside the context of the group. They believe there is no other way to be and often fear reprisals to themselves or others if they leave or even consider leaving the group. So definitely on that one too. I think a Mm -hmm. lot of my family members stay in it because they're afraid that like they'll lose their connection with their family if they leave. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then I always think, One of the things that is really great about being secular and oftentimes being atheist is this drive to be analytical, this drive to to get to the bottom of things, to define certain language. We had a great conversation before we started the podcast about defining woke culture. And that's what we're doing. We're defining is, did you grow up in a cult or not? And I think that is something that in general, and again, this is painting with a broad brush, but that's something that secular organizations pride themselves on. And I think 
that is is really important. And I think sometimes on the other side of that coin, it, I like how it said it's kind of like outlaw logic, just this intuitiveness and and the kind of the emotional side and the your subconscious is trying to tell you something before your frontal cortex has been able to articulate it. And so you just have this intuition, this feeling. And I'm just curious, I know you're with your degree in studying neuroscience. I know how important it is for you to define terms and get into it on a very academic level. But I'm just curious on an intuitive level, did you feel like you were a part of a cult? I would say that I don't think I actually learned what a cult was until probably like the year before I started college. Like when I was doing year or two, I guess, when I started going down this rabbit hole with the psychology and getting into atheist podcasts and stuff like that. It wasn't until I actually learned what some of the mental health professionals or sociology considered cults to be. And it's like, what are their characteristics? And then when you start th thinking about what are the behaviors, it's, oh, yeah. Before that in my life, and this is up to 30 or so, I think of a cult as something like you read about in the news like Jonestown or Heaven's Gate or whatever. And yeah. we think about these things in terms of the ones we read about in the news are the ones where it gets turned up to 11. Sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's when people die, when and it's not even just one or two or a few people die because that happens all the time mm -hmm. and it doesn't make the news. But it's when like a dozen people or more die, it's, oh, now you got a cult in the news. Or we had one in the news recently after last summer, we had a wildfire that started up near Boulder and there was a cult called the 12 tribes. The fire started, or at least one of the fires started on their property. And then they, the Denver post ran a whole three part series, multi-page series on this particular cult. So we only hear about cults when they get turned up to 11, but there's all these other ones that are out there just existing under the radar all the time and yeah. their dials are only at like nines or whatever but and nines are, are still very dangerous dials they're very bad they're yeah. very harmful to people but it's it's just not enough to make the news <laughs> sure yeah yeah and i can't help but think of our thing we always talk about things end up landing on a spectrum and one of my root problems with religion is just religious faith believing things on a lack of evidence or uh, spiritual apprehension, however they want to term it. And I'm like, my mom believes that way. My mom's not a bad person. She's not an evil person. She wouldn't treat anybody in a public setting in like some of the evil ways, like we could be, we see things happen, but she's still on a spectrum where if you spin that dial over to the other end, same kind of belief, same faith, and you've got people that fly airplanes into buildings and do all kinds of crazy shit. And so you're on this spectrum. And I think that's something people dance around with religion is like, is religion a cult? I think it's on the spectrum of cults for certain. It's but where are they dialed into? Are they a four or five or are they a nine or a 10? Exactly. After I found that kind of list of bullet points that we just went over exhaustively, mm -hmm. I learned about Stephen Hassan and the bite model. Yeah, the bite model. It's control over behavior information, thought, and emotion. And it's a matter of these are sliders or knobs like zero to 10 or zero to 11, however you care to think about it. 
that can be anywhere on that scale. Like how much control does this group have over your behavior or your information or et cetera. And so what I came from, like those knobs are somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. It's all subjective, Mm -hmm. at least the six going up to maybe a eight or a nine in some cases, but we weren't turning it up past 10 and nobody died immediately. There's, there's physical abuse, there's sexual abuse. There's all the other things that come with all the other religion slash cults. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is a matter of a spectrum of behavior rather than there's not just one. It's not a checklist that you can say, this is it. And necessarily it's where do these knobs fall and where do you decide to call it a cult? Yeah. And you had also mentioned right before we started the podcast about the difference between the pond and the lake. Yeah. Or you can give the illustration once again for our listeners, because I, I thought that analogy was really profound. Yeah. And I actually Googled that. And what's really funny is if you Google it, it talks about there's no precise difference. They're talking about the size. And a quick Google search is a pond is a body of water that's less than half an acre. A lake is larger. But I something that I thought was really funny was the main search from people in regards to the dichotomy between a pond and a lake is how big is a pond before it becomes a lake? And isn't that's <laughs> the number one search? And isn't that just such a great me- analogy or metaphor is okay, we're talking about cults. How big does the cult become before it becomes a lake? How big does the cult become before it becomes a mega church? And I think there's a level of irony that there's some truth in that thought process. And similarly to that, like if you look up a psychology or psychiatric definition of a delusion, Mm -hmm. it's a persistent false belief that resists any attempt to correct it or something like that. Okay, if one person is experiencing that, it's a delusion. But there's a like a an exception carved out. If many people believe it, it's not a delusion anymore. It's a religion. Absolutely. It, that, it's a that, bandwagon fallacy plays a part of that. Yeah. That's like one, one of the first things I grasped when I read Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, is making that association with religion. That it's like, it, I think Sam Harris put it another way, which was like religion allows, you know, what only lunatics and insane people can believe on their own huge groups of people can believe yeah and i think the thing that's important is that we're we you discuss it because it does have social consequences it does trickle down it does create an environment mm-hmm. for abuse and neglect and and i'm really glad that there's it seems that this, these conversations are happening more and more. We're not the only podcast who are discussing these types of issues. And so I think that's something that's extremely positive. So River, one of, one of the ideas I had <clears throat> was that we could jump into talking about right now, as you got older and you started deval- evaluating these things and you started questioning the nuances of a cult or a religion, in your processing what your childhood was like. And you had used very specific language of weapon of choice, which I thought was interesting. And earlier you had spoken about child abuse and mental handicap. Do you think a good direction that we can go is I can ask the question, being that this was a very intimate religious group, the religious practices were within families' homes, 
and transition into what does that do to a child's psychology? What does that do moving forward? And re- and referring back to the statement that you have the shit scared out of you, like you scare the hell into them. And then we can discuss child abuse and the nuances of that. It's also a, a direction we could start into. Yeah, I'm happy with any of it, honestly. <laughs> yeah, that's what's always so hard. It's always tough. It's like, I feel like there's a ton of gold in your story and in the way you deliver it. It's like, let's mine all the gold right now. Let's have everybody hear River's story. And it's definitely tough with the time constraint because there's definitely a lot of different ways to go with it. And one of the big questions I do have that I want to make sure we circle into is, You're very active at Secular Hub. You're very active in these communities. This is something that you are passionate about and just understanding why you're passionate about this and what kind of drives you to make this a conversation in your life. And I think that would be a really nice way to put the bow on it at the end. Yeah. I'm definitely happy to talk about that and I'm happy to come back again and cool session. Yeah. Because someone who has just a really powerful story was in it. Brian's was three podcasts and I'm not exaggerating. We edited out an an entire podcast. So I think that would be really beneficial. And I hope you absolutely promise that you'll come back and we can dive into another issue, which I think will be unique and fun. Yeah, I've become a firm believer in telling the story and just getting it all out and having mm-hmm. people engaged and learning. And part of part of my process coming out was other people's stories. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you touched yeah. on another one earlier, the God delusion. I read yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And the chapter that stabbed me right in the gut was the one about childhood indoctrination. Yep. Yeah. Ow. Perfect segue. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm ready to segue this in. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Let me get a little sippy poo. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about cults. We're talking about possibly even a little bit of high control groups. Where does that transition to where it's socially accepted as just a church or a religion or a denomination? And we're trying to put terms on this and One of the things that we've talked about in regards to this is what it is like as a child in this situation. I know a couple of notes I had written down, River, was that you talked about put the fear of God in them. And that's, listen, I've heard that 200,000 times growing up, and that's just from being in the Bible Belt. I also thought you, you chose really powerful language of saying weapon of choice was a leather belt, because I think that really defines it. So I think... What I would like to do is just talk about that. Do these organizations, religions, cults, whatever label we want to give them, how does this affect children's growth? Tim's talked about this, this trying to overcome a mental handicap that can be presented sometimes, some social handicaps where socially there's some awkwardness in leaving a, a a high control group and then trying to navigate things. So that's something that I think would just really be a great subject, especially with your knowledge in neuroscience. But what consequences do these types of groups have on children? The the story I've most often ended up telling people is an experience that I went through in college not very long ago. I started college in spring of 2016. So this probably happened somewhere in the last five, six years. 
I interned in a neuroscience lab, behavioral neuroscience, and we were a preclinical lab, which means that we're doing research on animals rather than humans, which is Mm -hmm. called clinical research. Now, you can feel however you like about animal research, and I have feelings about it, and I'll just tell you that I eventually walked away from it because I just didn't feel comfortable with it. So take that for what it's worth. But I think it's important to scientific understanding in a lot of ways. And we can justify that decision ethically or not justify it ethically, depending on your particular ethical stance. I just want to get that tossed out there at front. We worked with rats and I was working on a particular experiment where we're trying to find ways to treat anxiety, trauma-related disorders in animals, in rats particularly. And so first we have to make them scared of something, and then we have to train them not to be scared of it, and then see if our intervention works. So the way that we train them to be scared of something, say a tone that we play over a speaker, like a beep, we bring our little rats in and we put them in a little cage that has metal bars for a floor and the metal bars are hooked to a shock controller that's managed by a computer and we have several of these going at once and so what happens is we take these rats from they've just been living in little cages their whole lives we stick them in these other special little cages and then we wait a little bit and then we play a tone through the speaker and then after that tone stops we send a shock through the floor now it's not a it's not a painful shock. It's just like a scary shock, right? Like mm-hmm. when you sure. grab hold of yeah. a spark plug wire on your car when it's running or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's ow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But these poor little critters have no idea this is coming and they're scared shitless and they'll end up like hanging from the ceiling of it, their little claws or whatever. They're terrified. They they urinate and defecate. And anyway, so a couple of these goes on. And by the time like the third or fourth beep and shock come around they hear that beep and they're just already just cowering they're responding they, to the beep because they yep. realize they can't there's no escape from it they can't get away from it the shock is inevitable and it's tied to that beep and so this goes into something that over a long term they call learned helplessness but it's what happens to any animal when it's being traumatized and has no escape and over a long period of time in humans, we call this complex PTSD. It's a long mm-hmm. series of, right? Yep. But it doesn't have to be a long period of time. And this is the epiphany that I had while I'm standing here watching this happen for the first time with my clipboard judging freezing behavior on the part of these rats. And I realized this is what happens to kids when you yeah. physically hit them. And this is all of corporal punishment. This is the whole fucking thing right here it's Mm -hmm. pain like we know how this works from a neuroscience perspective we've analyzed it we've dissected the brains of these animals after this stuff happens we've seen the proteins that get um when you get a repeated stimulus in the Mm -hmm. brain for example a repeated stimulus that's electrical activity that happens at first and then repeated electrical activity stimulates what's called a cascade of transcription factors in the cells, in the neurons of the brain. And those start the process of growing new synaptic connections between the neurons. 
So it doesn't take but a few shocks repeated over a couple of times to start really wiring this stuff in hard in terms of proteins in your brain. And so they just, that's how any animal learns how to be afraid of some stimulus, right? Right. It's a biological process and it's not optional. And I've seen people talk about like when they spank kids, for example, I've been told when I spank my kids, I sit down and tell them first that I love them, but they messed up or whatever. None of that shit matters. The pain matters. And it's like, that's what gets stored. There's no context. The context is irrelevant. The brain stores the pain deep down in that amygdala, deep down in the brain stores the pain. There's a book out there, a really powerful book out there. Maybe some listeners have heard of it, but always worth checking out. It's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Oh man, we've already <laughs> well, talked about, I knew it was so coming. Oh, our, okay. On our last podcast, we talked about that book in, in some depth. The therapist that we had on, their name's Kit, and we discussed that, and that, that was our initial bond. And it's just funny, but we talked about yeah, the body keeps that, score. I'm a huge fan of that book, an absolutely huge fan of that book. Wonderful. I hadn't even listened to that one yet, but that's great. We're all yeah, on the same it, page here. It came out yesterday, that episode. Okay, right. Yeah, on. it's our latest. That was a thing that happened to me was like that just starting out as an intern there and scoring the these rats as they're being just scared absolutely shitless. And it's like, I had this like galaxy brain moment. This is what happened to me. Yeah. This is, and like in fundy culture, they talk about how, oh, they went off and got educated at college and now they think their upbringing was bad. It's like, yeah, we didn't understand before we didn't understand how this stuff works like we were gaslighted into thinking that spanking is good for you because the bible says so it's and then you come along and say oh no we have scientific research that says this is absolutely definitely bad and there's no way you can control how it wires a child's brain see i love that river and i to this day so I think I'm the only one of my siblings to achieve a bachelor's degree in a co- with a college education on anything. I think my brother has some equivalents, but it's all in law enforcement. But I achieved that. And a lot of the pressure on me to get a college degree came from my father. He was, you need to get your college degree. You need to get to do this. And now, of course, I'm the only sibling that has rebelled from our upbringing and our religion and all of these other things. And you want to talk about some negative synapses that have been generated in my brain. It's when my dad has told me, you're just so smart, you're stupid now. And he derides my college education and my efforts to inform and grow my knowledge and pursue all these other things. He derides it. And I'm like, it's because it's made me wise to your game. And it's also shown the the flaws and the chinks and everything that you've propped up my entire life. And I think that's, it's just really interesting the way you put it that way. In psychology, there's a term they use called learned helplessness. And this can happen to all sorts of what we consider to be lesser animals. So definitely it can happen to primates like us. But yeah, you figure out at some point, like you're stuck in a situation and you're just going to keep getting hurt and over again, and there's no escape from it. And so you end up resigned to it and you don't even try to fight back. You just Mm -hmm. lie there and take it and 
wince and yelp and stuff. And that's all you've got. It's like a puppy that's been beaten by a bad owner or anything like that. That's literally what happens when you beat kids. There's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for hitting a child ever. I've known so many people who managed to raise perfectly good kids without ever hitting them. Mm. Uh, There's just no excuse for it. It's illegal in 10 countries or more. We're the U.S. We're backwards. It's still legal to hit your children in all 50 states. So So if if we were having a conversation with someone who asked this question, I can hear this question being asked. River, I've tried a lot of different things. I can't seem to get through to my child. It seems like them getting spanked is the only thing that they respond to. And I'm trying really hard to teach my child consequences and understand consequences before they get to an age where their consequences have major effects on their life. I'm not saying that's my belief. I'm just for someone who's listening, maybe thinking that, what would your response be? Because there's the statement, there are healthier ways to to raise your children, but what is a healthier way for consequences to be understood? I think that varies for a lot of people and it depends on what their situations in life are and like what their cultural group is and what kind of education they've had on it. I would say probably the vast majority of people get into parenting without any training or reading or education on the subject whatsoever. I think it's one one thing that people just assume we can make a baby, we ought to be able to raise it, you know. Yeah. But there's tons and tons of books and resources out there for people to learn how to like positively parent their kids that like those resources are out there. They're all over right. the place. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is don't mistake compliance for personal growth. I think is what sure. I'm trying to say. Yeah, you can threaten a kid and you can hit them and you can get some compliance, but you aren't necessarily getting mind change and you aren't necessarily getting positive growth in the right direction that you want to get. You're you might be getting obedience, but you're also getting resentment. You're getting sure. trauma, you're getting anxiety, you're getting depression. You're getting all these other things. So this is this has been studied up one side and down the other. There's meta studies on it, which a meta study is basically you sit down and you look at all those studies on a particular topic and you f- roll them all into one kind of coherent data set and try to tease out what you can learn from it. It is absolutely the case that spanking children falls into the category of adverse childhood experiences. That's the term for it. ACEs, adverse childhood experience. These things statistically, and this this is one of those things where you can't say it's necessarily the case every time, but when you look at it on a broad scale, statistically, that's one of the factors that leads to all kinds of things. It actually leads to more rebellion, like Mm -hmm. more authoritarian and more violent parenting Mm -hmm. leads to more rebellion, not less. Mm -hmm. It also leads to worse health outcomes, mental and physical later on down the Mm -hmm. road including like heart attacks, drug addiction, suicide, depression, all the things like physical corporal punishment of children. We have determined through all the means and methods available to us. And the math speaks loudly. This is a net negative. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. It's a net negative. Tying it back around into what we were talking about with cults is that corporal punishment within religion and cults is pretty daggum common. I got the fire spanked out of me when I was a kid 
And I had a healthy fear of my dad. I used to, my mom used to tell me, you better do what I say. And if you break the rules, when your father gets home, he's going to hear about it. So when you talked about like neural connections, I had a neural connection and of anxiety around my father my entire life. And my sister and I have talked about experiencing that. It's like, we have it to this day. There's almost the, we talked about with one of the therapists we talked to about this fawning behavior when it comes to your psychology around our authority figures and our parents, even in our adult life, we can feel this fawning behavior. That's like an avoidance mechanism for all of that negative reinforcement. So this is common amongst cults, correct? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. that any of that authoritarian male headship, children are to be seen, not heard. Like all these things are wrapped up and tied together. Yeah, and, and you definitely see that culture with religion. You often see it in, even if it's not a quote unquote biblical practice, that doesn't change that a culture is formed whenever there's a group of people who think the same way and who act the same way. And in many religious cultures, that's very much the situation is children getting spanked or beaten for, like you said, not complying to whatever it needs to be. Yeah. It's hard to get any other idea if you take the Bible seriously. Mm -hmm. Because the advice the Bible gives is the whole spare the rod thing and children obey your parents. There's absolutely no stipulation in the Bible that parents are supposed to gently raise their kids and not fuck them up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's not in the Bible. The Bible is you respect your parents. And there's a bit in the Bible too. If your children are disobedient to some extent, you can take them outside the town and stone them to death. Yeah. I share very few of my dad's stories on the podcast. This might be the first or second, but I will share this one. I remember my dad beat the shit out of me pretty good and then would sometimes read Bible scriptures afterwards to to explain what had happened and why it had happened. And I remember vividly he, he used the scripture about honor thy mother and thy father. And I remember just looking at him and saying, what happens when your father's not an honorable person and that, and I I won't tell the rest of the story, but it got violent pretty quick. But, and that was one of my key arguments was that you just can't take the Bible for face value because it just caters and benefits the authority figure, which is always the male, the quote unquote male of the household. And a lot of times it just doesn't account for the complexity of the human experience. I'm drawn a blank on the gentleman's name, but he was a an LGBTQ queer advocate. And he was talking about how the Bible gets everything wrong about all this other stuff. It obviously was wrong about slavery because we've changed that. It was, what are the odds that it could have been wrong about the complexity of human sexuality? And, and people take, justify their bigotry with the Bible all the time. But this is in that same category. It's like, the Bible doesn't give you a lot more to go on. Like you said, River, that it was like, spare the rod and children honor your parents. It's That doesn't account for the complexity of the experiences that people and children are having all over the world. Yeah. And it doesn't account for our biology either. No, not all. Like, all these things we know about how our brains work and how brains learn, 
the, any stimulus that's painful is very quickly going to be wired in and avoided. That's a self-protection mechanism. And that's how we end up with these things. And you end up with kids that are like, they'll be obedient, but they will resent the hell out of you because they're just afraid of violence. And it so often happens that goes along with the parent enforcing something that is unreasonable. Yeah. For example, and this is like to wrap around and touch on, we alluded to me having like gender and queer things of being a part of this mixture. And it's, this was very much a part of it. Like from Mm -hmm. the time I was about seven, eight years old, I started to realize there was something different about me. I was consistently bullied at school and put down in in different ways and uh, treated as very effeminate and such like that. In my church, there were only two sexes and there were only two genders and they were correlated one-to-one with each other. You had male gonads and you had man gender or you had female gonads and woman gender and that was it and that's all there is from a very young age like i rebelled against haircuts and neckties like these were things that were forced on me in this group it was mandatory at least in my family it was and when i would question my parents about it if i questioned my mom about it she would be kind of evasive about it but say that it was, we want to look our best for God or whatever. And it's, but there's nothing in the Bible about this. And it was like, what would other people think of me if I let you look like a ragamuffin or something like that? Mm. I remember like there was a moment when it became very clear from her language that it was not about anything that was good for me or anything God supposedly cared about, but it was about her image in front of the other people at church. And that's, that was a moment that really broke my relationship with her for good. It, it never recovered Mm. after that. Like it was, you care more about yourself than you do about your own children. And then with my dad, it was more like if I tried to put up any kind of argument about it it was don't talk back or get hit. Right. And that was that, like, I was just simply forced to these things my whole life. And it was not anything I wanted for myself and it didn't feel right. Yeah. And like I came to find out much later in my life is that I am not someone who strictly fits in a male or female box. I have some different biology that goes on and that has led to some consequences for my sociology. And at this point in my life, where I'm allowed to be whatever the hell I want. I get to make my own decisions. I get to write my own script and be myself. I find myself being someone who is in between somewhere on a spectrum between man and woman. This is just a thing that has always existed. You could, there's a Wikipedia article on this at under third gender that might be useful, but this is something that is found in every culture on earth that has not been infected by Abrahamic religions. Third gender, there's more than two Native Americans or First Nations peoples had, they had a concept for this. There's some people that are not man or woman. They're both. And very often these would end up being like the shamans of the tribe or the old Mm -hmm. elders or whatever. Yep. People given kind of a, you know, not put down or beat up, but given a special place as being a little bit odd and different and having a different perspective. It's so f- interesting that you put it that way. I've had it, I've 
been a martial artist for the last 13 years and our teacher, because Isaac does it now too, Drew Lawrence, and he's been on the podcast. There's one you can go back and listen to if you want to. And he is, we joke that he is our shaman and he really sparked my curiosity in studying the Plains Indians and different tribes of Indians all around the world. And that there's a very interesting trend in those societies of the exact thing that you're talking about this in between gender. And a lot of times that person would be a shaman or a witch doctor or something like that. And that these communities treated them with a large measure of reverence. And it wasn't a real foreign thing in some of those cultures and that type of thing. And I've always thought that was very fascinating. Oh, this at home for me, probably, I don't know, about 15 years ago, something like that. I was remodeling a kitchen for a friend that I'd made through an internet game that I'd been on. And she'd been through the process of becoming a medicine woman in a Lakota Sioux, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she says, oh, I get what you are. You're Wink Tay, which is their oh. word for two spirit. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And I don't want to be like cultural appropriating or anything like that, but I don't think that concept is unique to Native Americans. I think it's a mm-hmm. human concept. Some people are just in between and Mm -hmm. it's always been that way. It will always be that way. And being like that, growing up fundy is no place. I was (laughs) about to say that. Yeah. And I'm sorry for interrupting, but you had talked about uh, when we went to the secular hub event, you had shared some experiences of hitting puberty and some of the challenges of that. And I thought that was really prevalent And if you don't mind, can you just real briefly for people who are listening, just explain you hit puberty and then came a new set of things for you to navigate in your life? Yeah. So I I was, it was decided at birth that I was a boy for the usual reasons, but in, in, in elementary school, I guess around sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, something like that, they start telling us about puberty's coming at you and this is what'll happen if you're a boy. And this is what'll happen if you're a girl. And I'm looking at that. Okay. Maybe I'll, I'll get some body hair and I'll get some big muscles and my voice will get really rar and like, I'll get facial hair and all that stuff. And then maybe the other boys will stop beating me up or stop attacking me or be nice to me. But that's not what happened. Puberty hit. I didn't really get much facial hair and I grew boobs and body fat kind of started filling out in like around the hips and things like that. And my situation did not really improve in the direction that I was hoping for it to. And as it turned out, I do have some unusual anatomy and I guess people who are interested can go search those things out on the medical literature for themselves. But the fact is that transgender, whatever we call it that word, because I think we have a need in our Western society to pathologize everything and give it a name. And to some extent, we have to pathologize things that you need medical treatment for because otherwise insurance won't pay for it. (laughs) So it's treated as a pathology. But the reality is these are just differences and little quirks and oddities of genetics and Mm -hmm. heredity and epigenetics that happen and have always happened. And they have results that are not entirely predictable, but the most important thing that I would 
try to leave anyone with there is you can't put all humans into one of two boxes. You just can't do it. If you define what those boxes are, you're immediately going to find some corner cases, some edge cases that don't fit in either box. And that's the case with what I would say many queer identities are trans identities, non-binary. We're going through a phase right now in our society where we're trying to figure all these things out and understand what they mean. And there is a paradigm that says this is a problem for the medical profession to solve with drugs and surgeries and everything like that. And it's, yeah, in some cases that's helpful, but I think what really needs to happen, the real underlying problem is it is the cultural paradigm. Mm -hmm. The cultural paradigm says there's only man or woman and no in between. And we need to get rid of that paradigm and accept that some humans just don't fit in a box. They fit somewhere else. We exist. It's it's kind of like third parties with politics, Uh right? How many Uh third parties are there? There's not just Uh one third party. There's many. (laughs) There's a bunch. (laughs) There's an indeterminate number of third parties, but they're all valid and they all exist. Mm -hmm. I think it's really worth pointing out. There's something very powerful about you said that this is not an abnormal. This has been going on for a long time as that great antidote you gave about the woman who was talking about the Lakota and the Sioux having a direct term for something like this shows this is something that's been going on since the beginning of time without this. One of the things I think culturally that's going on here that is kind of driving deconversion, if you will, because we're not satisfied with the answers we're being given, is that there is a counterculture saying this is not only this isn't a new thing. This has been going on for a long time. We need to find different language. We need to find ways of adapting. I think it's humanity making an effort at being altruistic and let's change the paradigm here. And religion is freaking out because it doesn't have an answer for any of this. It's so rigid. It's so locked in. It can't adapt. It can't move. It can't bend. It can't flex. And it doesn't have an answer for this. And society's going, look, we got to take another look at this and come up with another way of navigating it in a better, more healthy sort of way. And religion and cults don't have any bandwidth for this. I've been hammering on this one for a while because anybody who takes the Bible seriously as an account, as like a history book, (laughs) it's well, humanity started with the dirt man and the rib woman. Yeah. And that's it. There's only, you're either an Adam or an Eve and there's no, there's nothing else. And yeah. some liberal Christians say, there's this verse that says male and female, he created them. So technically someone could be both. And it's, you guys are reaching here. So yeah. yeah. I feel bad for you. <laughs> and, that's, and that's like the 25th revised version of the 20 <laughs> of the 29th translated version of the King James Bible that was translate. Come on. Come on. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, I, well, Isaac. So is fond of saying, let's what's your catchphrase. You said, if you were going to be a politician, it's time to grow up, people. It's time to grow up. Hey, the, when <laughs> Francie edit that out. That's my political campaign. It's oh, time I, to grow up. And then in I, debates, I want to say, I don't say this often, but it's time to fucking grow up. That's, <laughs> but listen, that's fucking, that's campaign gold there. So Francie, you uh, edit it out. That's for 2032 or something. But so 
there's two things. River, I want to respect both your time and your story. And we took a little break and we talked about what direction would we like to continue the story. And I said that the challenges that you had with navigating queer issues and being transgender was a story that really respected time and respected us taking a deep dive into it. And we, I don't think we have enough time to, to give that story the respect that it deserves and trying to respect things. We will also want to respect your time. So I know that you said you had something going on this evening. So one is I refuse to publish this podcast. If you don't promise to come back on, that's number one. (laughs) (laughs) And then the second thing is, is there, if someone's listening to this podcast, what is something that you hope that they get out of this or learn, or what is maybe a message that you hope they receive? What do you hope that this episode does for people? Okay. So first I'll say, yeah, you don't have to twist my arm too much. I have lots more words to say, so I'll come back. The other thing is we've touched on it a few times over this episode, but it's really important for people to understand that whether you call it a cult or a religion or wherever it is on that scale, there's a common set of things that happen to a brain, especially if you're a child who is indoctrinated as a child, that stuff is in you. It's in there deep. And it's not just a matter of changing thoughts and ideas. It's not like your brain is a computer with a processor chip and RAM and a hard drive and stuff that just stores stuff reliably. And it's not like your brain is just a piece of meat that has a consciousness sort of hanging out in it. This is all integral. Your brain is composed of cells that are connected to each other. And it's the connectivity between those cells that sort of determine your beliefs and your understanding of the world, your the way you see the world, the way you interact with it. And this includes like the things you love, whether it's playing an instrument or a game, it's the things you hate, like your trauma and all this, it all gets wired in your brain in the same way. It's the same exact process, no matter what it is your brain is storing, it's the same process. The electrical activity happens, and then you get a cascade of activity happening in your cells. And that grows new protein connections between your neurons. And that's how you remember things. And it doesn't matter whether it's true or false or a good memory or bad memory. It's the same process. And this is why when people deconvert, it can be very traumatic. It's in some ways like losing a loved one because there's all these connections in your brain that are there. And all of a sudden you have this dissonance thing where your sort of your consciousness becomes aware of all these problems. And so what has to happen is you have to rewire your brain. Those old connections have to dissolve and die off. That's called synaptic pruning. And you have to make new connections. You literally have to rewire your brain when you come out of religion. Just give yourself grace when you do it. It's going to take a while and you're going to go through a lot of anger and rage and all that stuff. It's grief. It's a grief process and your brain has to rewire. Wow. Mic drop. That's a great place for us to wrap it up. Yep. Until um, the next one. Yeah. Until the next one. 
Yeah, this isn't goodbye. This is just see you later. I'm excited. (laughs) So much fun. Thank you, River, so much for coming on the podcast with us. We'll look forward to having you back again. And thank you for treating us to such a good time at Secular Hub while we were down there in Denver. It was such a refreshing experience. I have a lot more to say about that, too. (laughs) Exactly. Thus, we're going to have to have more. I think we're going to... I don't see this as like... That that one trip up to Sec Hub with you guys, I don't see that as being our only one. We've already been having a discussion about going back up to Denver. My wife missed out on that trip and was really sad and disappointed she didn't get to come and do all that. So we're already floating ideas around. So we have Hemet Meta coming in September. The friendly atheist? Yes, indeed. Awesome. That's awesome. So we'll see you in September. In September. <laughs> River's got the plans. <laughs> got the plans. I've got to take you guys to some barbecue you're going to like, too. Oh, dude. Don't tempt yeah. me with a good time. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, so thank, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you on the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Bye, everyone. Right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Deconversion Podcast. We're so happy you joined us. Please like, share, and subscribe. And we'll see you on the next episode.